Bibles, let's open up to John 19. We've been in the Gospel of John recently, and as we come to today, we're nearing the end of the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John is a recollection of the life and ministry of Jesus from the perspective of John. There are four Gospels in our New Testaments, and they all come with their various emphases and their various things that they want to hit about Jesus. There's no monolithic one single story about Jesus that we come with all of these different interests, and John has his own. And one of the things that we see in the Gospel of John, and in all the Gospels for that matter, is there's an interest and an emphasis on those who follow Jesus. What, who are they? What do they look like? What does a good model of discipleship or learning look like? And John takes pains to show us, particularly, that Jesus' disciples, that he notes the calling of many of the men, like Andrew and Simon Peter, he notes Philip and Nathaniel, he notes Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and Thomas. But true to form to the early Jesus movement is that John takes a special interest in the women who follow Jesus. And this is significant because in the ancient world, you typically did not have a lot of interest shown in the women who follow in any particular movement. That you actually find that their women are, are, might be there but are not heard. And in all of the Gospels, particularly John, that John is, in, a, in contrast to the writings of the ancient world, that the, when the writers of the New Testament remember the stories of Jesus, they often remember details about the women who are present and the stories themselves are about women who have been touched by Jesus and whose lives have been changed by Jesus. If you just think about the Gospel of John, we've read a number of these stories and talked about them, um, particularly back in chapter 4, like the woman at the well. It's a central story in the Gospel of John. The first evangelist to her people is this woman that Jesus meets at the well. And it's a wonderful story of how Jesus comes and has this, this kind of a sparring conversation with this woman, and then he says, he tells her about herself, and she goes back, and it says in John 4, 39, that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, and the woman's testimony is simple. He told me all that I ever did. And she's the first one. She goes into this place that no other Jews would go, but she goes. And so John takes special interest in that. I think also a few weeks ago we talked about the raising of Lazarus. And you have these two sisters, the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And Martha, when Jesus says to her, they both tell her, they both tell Jesus, like if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. It's kind of this rebuke, this kind of soft rebuke against Jesus, like you should have been here. But Jesus asks her, he says, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And Martha says this. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, that's a pretty good confession, and that comes from Martha. And John wants to make it clear that Martha knows who Jesus is. And then, of course, after that account, the other sister of Lazarus, who has been raised from the dead while Lazarus is eating at the table and where, while Mary is preparing the food with joy, that, La, that, uh, that, Mar, that Mary comes behind and she washes the feet of Jesus and she anoints his feet with this very costly perfume, John 12, 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment 
and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And that just as the woman of the well tells her story and many believe in Jesus, and uh, Martha believes in Jesus and she confesses him, that Mary helps to understand, helps everyone around to understand the value of Jesus. And in a world where women were often not mentioned or heard, John makes it clear that not only did faithful men follow Jesus, but faithful women. And on this Mother's Day, I thought we would take a, pa- a look at a passage where faithful women, including Jesus' mother, gather at the cross of Jesus, and John recounts a profound moment. So let's open up to John chapter 19, verse 25, and let's take a look at this particular passage and just note who is here. You guys with me today? It's Mother's Day. We thought, hey, the mother of Jesus. Let's talk about the mother of Jesus. And some of you might be saying like, hey, we're not Roman Catholic. Why are you talking about Mary? And what I would say is, I'm just saying, I'm just recounting what the Bible says. All right? Let's just talk a little bit about, she was important enough to mention in the Bible, we can at least mention a little bit of what the significance of her in relationship to Jesus is this morning. So John 19, 25, it says this, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So let's take a look at who these women are. Actually, depending on where you put the, the, the punctuation in this particular sentence, could say a little bit about how many women are there. Some people think that there's only two women there. That it says his mother and the sister of his mother, namely Mary of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Some people think there's only two. Some other people think that there are three women there. His mother, Mary of Clopas, who is the sister of, the mother, of his mother, and Mary Magdalene. That would be three. I'm going to take the, 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 the uh, approach that it would be weird to have two sisters named Mary. Okay? As much as it feels like everybody in the Bible is named Mary, okay, it would be weird to have two daughters and name them both Mary. Okay? That, I don't know if that, that might happen, but I, I think so. So I think we've got four women here, and I want to talk about who they are, excuse me, who they are, and how the early church remembers them, and what can we learn a little bit from them, and particularly, we're going to focus at the end on uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and this whole idea that Jesus from the cross says to John, the, the apostle, behold your mother, and then to Mary, behold your son. So we're going to get there, but let's talk about these, these four women to start off. It says that standing by the cross of Jesus were first his mother. Jesus' mother first appears in the gospel in chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. Do you guys remember the story? It seems as though at that wedding in chapter 2 in Cana, Mary might have had some responsibilities at the wedding because when they run out of wine, she knows about it. No one else knows about it. She knows about it. And she goes to Jesus and says, hey, they've run out of wine. And if you remember Jesus' response, it's a little bit awkward because he says, he says, woman, he says that, it's not derogatory, but he says, my hour has not yet come. And essentially he's using this kind of, this man, like he, it's a little bit of a distancing formula, like he says, he doesn't call her mom, he calls her mother, or, he, or mother, he calls her 
woman or man. So, and, and again, in this passage, the same thing is, happens here. So there, I want to talk a little bit about that as we move on. But um, So Jesus' mother, now what's her name? All right, thank you. Now, if you only had the Gospel of John, you would not know the name of Jesus' mother because she is never named in the Gospel. She is only known as the mother of Jesus. In si- similar that um, the Apostle John who writes it is only known as the disciple who Jesus loved. He's never named. And so one thing that's really interesting about, we know that her name is Mary because in all the other Gospels she's named as Mary, but in the Gospel of John she is the anonymous mother of Jesus, which is really, I think it's, it's interesting as we move forward, as we kind of look at what this is, but we'll come back to Mary in a moment. By the way, the name Mary is also the name Miriam, which is why, because Moses' sister's name is Miriam, and it becomes kind of a standard name that you would typically name your daughter in a Jewish culture. You find a good Jewish name. Miriam's a good Jewish name. And so why are there so many Marys? Because there's so many Miriams in the Jewish world. So that's the first thing. Okay, the second person that's there, we'll come back to Mary in just a second. The second person's there is called Mary's sister or her sister. In other words, this is Jesus' aunt on her mother's side. Uh, it says, standing at the cross is the sister of his mother. That's what it says in Greek. And so Jesus' aunt that's on his mother's side is there. Now, some evidence is um, that Mary's sister, that this is also named in other Gospels. When you hear the other Gospels, and there's women that are gathered at the cross, whether they're standing from a distance or they come closer. One of the other women that's named is the woman Salome. And the woman Salome is the mother of John and James, and so there's some, uh, one scholar has made the argument that Salome and this aunt of Jesus is the same person, which would make Jesus and James and John cousins, it would make them first cousins, which might give us a little bit of an explanation about why Jesus commends his mother to his cousin, if that's the case. So, but in any, in any event, uh, Jesus' mother is there, and Jesus' aunt is there. How many people have an aunt that's t- typically there for them, right? We saw Aunt Paula in the baptistry, right? We all have an Aunt Paula now, that's the, and that's the beautiful thing about this passage. But we all, either you are an aunt, like some of you are like the favorite aunt. Raise your hand if you're the favorite aunt, okay? That's right. You guys know. You know who you are, Right? And if you, ha- you probably have a favorite aunt that you have, but you don't tell anybody that she's your favorite aunt, but your favorite aunt knows that she's your favorite aunt. So we have Jesus' aunt is there as well. So we've got his mom and his moms and her sister, and they are there following Jesus. It also says, at the cross of Jesus, is Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, according to, we don't know anything about this Mary in the Bible. There's nothing that's said about her. Even the name Clopas, this is the only time in the Bible that we see the name Clopas. So we don't really have a lot of biblical evidence about who this is. However, in Christian tradition, Clopas, Clopas was known as the brother of Joseph. 
the husband of Mary. So, now, you can write that down. Now, we, this is all extra biblical. Like that, Take it with a grain of salt. But what you end up having then is you have Mary, Jesus' mother, her sister, Jesus' aunt on, her mother's, on his mother's side, and Jesus' other aunt, who is on his father's side. So you have these faithful women who no doubt have watched this young man grow up and they have followed him to Jerusalem. They have followed in his community. One of the cool things about Jesus that we find out and the Jesus movement is that to be a follower, you did not have to be, to receive the training of Jesus, you did not have to be a man. You didn't even have to be of a certain age. Like you were never disqualified. You could come if you were a man or a woman. You were young or you were old. That Jesus had gathered this, this crowd, this community of learners around him that was composed of both men and women. And the earliest followers of Jesus note this and make it clear. It, goes against, it cuts against the grain of the culture that Jesus is in. And so you've got Mary, you have her sister, you have Jesus' other aunt, and they are all gathered together. It also says that Mary Magdalene is there, standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And this is the first appearance in the gospel of Mary Magdalene. It will not be the last. If you were here on Easter, you know that Mary Magdalene is the first witness of the resurrection of Jesus. The first ever. So, it's so fresh. She, this, this guy comes up next to her and she thinks it's the gardener. You guys remember that? Like she, she thinks it's the gardener. And Mary Magdalene becomes the first witness, but she's there at the crucifixion. As a matter of fact, every gospel, all four of the gospels record that Mary Magdalene is present at the crucifixion and at the resurrection. And so she becomes a central, a central witness. By the way, did you guys know in the ancient world, especially in the ancient Jewish world, that in order to be an, an actual accredited witness, you could not be a woman. Women were not allowed to be official witnesses in court cases. But the earliest followers of Jesus are like, we'll take the women. They can, they can testify. We want them to testify. It, 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 it's a profoundly countercultural group. And I, I want us to make sure that we never lose track of that in just the, the beauty of the inclusiveness of Jesus. Mark and Luke tell us that Mary Magdalene was freed from a number of demons in Jesus' ministry. Um, she's mentioned as being at, the, at the, being at the cross in all four Gospels, and she will be the first to see Jesus resurrected. And so we've noted that the women have been able and skilled testifiers of the truth of Jesus. They've been models of faith, models of witness, models of discipleship. Men and women faithfully walk in discipleship in a culture where only men could follow as rabbinic learner, and Jesus gathers that community. Now let me, as we note who's there, I want us to back up a little bit, because we fast-forwarded a little bit through this. Last time we were in here, we were talking about the upper room discourse, and we've kind of fast-forwarded. We're going to we're going to look at what leads up to the, the trials and the crucifixion of Jesus. But what we need to note here is that this gathering of women is a moment of profound grief. It's a moment of profound grief. Jesus is 
on the cross dying. He has been overwhelmed. He has been conquered by those near him and around him. As much as he, he's been overwhelmed and publicly shamed, and as much as he has exerted his power in teaching and ministry and miracles, and they witnessed it at the wedding of Cana. They witnessed it at the woman at the well. They witnessed it at the feeding of the 5,000. They, they witnessed his power. They witnessed him in conflict, conquering his opponents, a skilled, a skilled uh, rhetorician, able to win the arguments. Jesus has not chosen to exercise his power to get off of the cross and they are there witnessing it as much as he has that power he has not exerted it and he is on the cross dying before their very eyes being humiliated before their very eyes and while they're there they're flanked by four Roman soldiers that are gambling for the clothes of Jesus. I, this is another reason why I think there's four women here, because I think John is showing this kind of symmetry, that you've got four Roman soldiers that are gambling for Jesus' clothes, and you have four women that have gathered to grieve in faith, in following Jesus. Now, why do I mention this? A couple of Mother's Days ago, we were in the Gospel of Mark, and I preached on the Syrophoenician woman. I love this story. You guys remember this story? There's a reason why I chose it on Mother's Day, the Syrophoenician woman, because Jesus, uh, she's in uh, modern-day Lebanon, which is outside of the land of Israel. So they're in this Gentile land, and Jesus and his followers go up to this area of Tyre and in Lebanon. And um, it's not a Jewish area, and so they start doing, they're, they're doing their thing, and Jesus is talking with the disciples, and this woman, this Gentile woman, this Syrophoenician woman, she comes up to Jesus, and she's like, Jesus, my daughter is sick, would you come heal her? And if you remember um, the anti-Mother's Day um, Jesus, I'm just kidding, Jesus is not anti-Mother's Day, um, but he says, hey, we don't throw the bread of the children to the dogs. You're like, Say that again, Jesus? Like, that doesn't sound like you, <laughs> right? But he, he's like, look, you're, you're Gentiles. I've come for the children of Israel, and we don't give the bread, of the, for the bread of the children to the dogs. He calls the lady a dog. And then she comes back at him, and she says, hey, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And you know what Jesus says? That is a model of faith. Here's the deal. The only person to ever win an argument with Jesus is a mom who's advocating for her daughter, right? Like, and, and Jesus says, that is a model of faith. That is a model of faith. Look at that woman. And, and it's, it's like, you look, read through the Gospels. Nobody ever wins an argument with Jesus. He's always better than whoever's coming at him with whatever. But this woman shows up for her child, and he's like, that's faith. I'll change my tune to that. S super interesting. So, so th but the idea, you all know that if there's, if there's a mom out there who's advocating for their child, that it has a certain velocity to it. Can I get an amen? Yes, and there's an amen. But I also, in, in this passage, I want us to note that we don't, have, we don't have a mom advocating for her child. We have a mom and her friends grieving while her child struggles. 
And I want us to also just note that as much as there's, there's nothing like the velocity of a mom advocating for her children, but there's also nothing like a mom grieving for a struggling child. We all, look, if you have kids, you know you're only doing as well as your, as your child who's struggling the most, right? I, maybe this is just me, but it is, it's hard to thrive when you know your kids are struggling. And I think with this, as we go to this scene, Jesus, who has had this profound ministry up to this point, has exerted profound authority. His mother is following him. And that you're like, that's not hard to believe. Like, my mom's watching right now from, you know, Idaho, right? So, hi, mom. Happy Mother's Day, right? But we, we know it's not hard to believe, but the idea of like, but we know, we've seen when our moms are grieving at our struggles. We've seen that. And we note not, not just the velocity of an advocate, but the velocity of grief. And what we see here at the foot of the cross as Jesus is withholding his power and choosing to suffer, choosing to go the route of suffering. As it says in Luke, when Simeon and Anna meet Mary, they say, hey, Mary, this child is destined for greatness, but there will be a sword that pierces through your heart as well. And this is probably the moment where the sword is piercing through her heart. No one grieves or hurts for their sons and daughters quite as much as a mother. And here we have a mother and those surrounding her grieving for her son. And I suppose there's one observation, there's a couple observations I want to make about this passage and, and just about Mary as a mother, Jesus as a son, as well as the other women that are there. But one observation is that even in the bitter anguish of accomplishing his work on the cross, Jesus took thought of his mother. And it's Mother's Day, so you better do something nice for your mom. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're like, man, you are laying it on thick today, Pastor Craig. You know, like, moms, I hope you have a great day because I'm coming to bat for you right now. No, I'm just kidding. I, I mean, I am, but it's, yeah. Okay, the idea is this, that even, even as Jesus has gone through, and this is near the end, it's, it's, it's actually after this that Jesus will take the last sip of wine and say, it is finished. And so this is near the end, and in, the, in this moment, as he's on the cross, as, as the salvation of the world hangs in the balance, Jesus is mindful of the situation of his mother. It's considerable, and it's undeniable. I think we, we as Protestants, we might, um, we, we'll talk a little bit about what, what comes next, but, um, and what, what do we make of Mary in this, but it is just one thing to note that Jesus does take note of his mother. There's something significant that's going on here. And what follows has its various interpretations. Look at verse 26. When Jesus sees his mother and the disciple whom he loves standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, again, he doesn't even call her mom. We'll talk about it. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So what do we make, what, I just, I want to finish this sermon by just asking this question, what do we make of these two statements? Woman, behold your son, and behold your mother. And I think, I thought that these were particularly interesting statements for us to reflect on on Mother's Day, that we could just st- stop right there if we just said, hey, look, um, wim- woman, behold your children, and children, behold your mother. Like, that's, that's a good Mother's Day reflection right there. But Jesus is doing something with this. The Apostle John and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Although, as we think about this, what is he saying about John and Mary? But to the gospel writer, to John the gospel writer, it's not, what do we say about John and Mary? What do we say about the anonymous mother of Jesus and the anonymous disciple? Now, in Roman Catholic tradition, okay, in Roman Catholic tradition, there's a lot that's made of this passage, um, particularly that it's, it's right before the end where Jesus doesn't, he doesn't say it is finished until he has done this thing with Mary, okay? There's something about that. Um, but there's also this idea that uh, if it is, if Mary is this anonymous mother of Jesus and John is this anonymous disciple that represents all disciples, in Roman Catholic tradition, they take this passage and they'll elevate Mary as Mary becomes a symbolic mother of all disciples, okay? Now, whether, again, I, I, the, the Roman Catholic tradition, I think it has, has a richness to it. This is one area where I would, I would peel off. I am, I'm, I am squarely a Protestant on the issue of Mary. I, I actually don't think this passage is elevating Mary. If anything, what it, it, it's actually, it's, it's kind of elevating, well, first of all, it's elevating Jesus particularly, but it's distancing Mary from Jesus. He doesn't call her mother. As a matter of fact, in the gospel, what's the big thing about, about the parentage of Jesus in the gospel? It's that who, who is what? It's that God is his father. And that is said over and over and over again in the gospel. It's what gets him in trouble, that my father has sent me. My father has sent me. And so I do think that John is try, and Jesus is trying to say, it's, it's not okay to refer to Mary as my mom. I'm not referring to her as, as mom because I only refer to father as God. And I don't want to confuse that there is some kind of connection there. So God is his father. And yes, Mary is the woman who gave birth. Woman, where, you know, behold your son. At the same time, as a Protestant, I do have to like kind of contend with this idea that it seems like there's something significant about Mary. Uh, it, it's hard to get around this idea that, again, she receives an angelic announcement of the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1. Has anybody received an angelic announcement? Okay, no. She's called blessed by that angel. She's called favored by that angel. She sings a song and is recorded in Scripture. Has anybody sung a song that has been recorded anywhere? Okay, probably not. She has one that has been recorded in Scripture for 2,000 years. She follows Jesus literally from birth to death. She is present and alongside him the entire way. She understands the power of Jesus, maybe in ways that other people didn't. At the wedding, she's like, they're out of wine, and she's probably like, it's time to, you know, 
a little, little action here. And he's like, it's not my time. But, but he ends up doing it anyway. She understands who he is and his power. And Jesus is thinking of her while on the cross. So far from dismissing the importance of Mary, I want to note it. Like, it's significant. Something, there is something significant about Mary. I just don't think it goes to the level of, what, of, of this idea that she is helping with the redemption of all of humanity in this. I don't think that's what's happening here. But at the same time, Jesus is doing something with this. All right. She is unnamed. I think this is important. I think this is one thing that maybe the Roman Catholic tradition could use is that in the Gospel of John, she is not named. And I think that's on purpose. And it's not, that's not to elevate her. I think it's to level the playing field with her. In the same way that I think John, the reason he doesn't name himself is he doesn't want to like, hey, I'm John, right? He's like, no, I'm just, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. And maybe that is elevating himself too. But the idea that it's anonymous, it's anonymous. So what exactly is going on? Here's, a, here's the standard Protestant interpretation, and I do think it's helpful to think about. It's more of a historical interpretation, and it's this. It's, it, it, it notes that Jesus' mother who is likely at this point a widow, Joseph at this time, the traditions are that Joseph is much older than her and that he has passed away. We don't hear anything about Joseph as Jesus is an adult, that she is likely a widow at this point, um, and that, if I can find my place again here, um, and now she is losing her firstborn son, And in a culture like the one that she was in, she would be grieved, but she would also be socially at risk. She had had no means of someone providing for her uh, a roof over her head and the way she could live. And so she would be on the fringes of society unless someone brought her under their household. And so the traditional Protestant interpretation of what's going on uh, behold your son and, uh, and behold your mother is that what Jesus is doing is that Jesus notes that someone is going to need to provide for her. So Je- Jesus enlists John as the person who would be the one to take over that responsibility. And it says, and from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And so roof over her head, but essentially that he would take responsibility. But at the same time, I do want to note that I I don't know if that totally satisfies the significance of Mary here or what's going on in this statement. So as we look at this and it says, uh, when he says, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. I think there's there's something else that's going on here. I think it's something for us today as we're here, whether you're a mom or not, if you have faith in Jesus, there's something about this that's important. The profound truth that accompanies faith in Jesus is this, that Jesus notes, not only in this gospel, but in the synoptic gospels, that the people who follow Jesus, who have faith in Jesus, they find themselves in a profoundly realigned family. 
that they come from families of origin that may or may not understand what's going on with my faith in Jesus, your faith in Jesus, that sometimes our families don't totally understand that. But as we come to faith in Jesus, what we find is that we're surrounded by a lot of people who do understand what Jesus has done in our lives, and what the Bible says is what happens is these people who have faith in Jesus, they become a new family. It is a new family, and essentially this, that what John is is recording here is that at the foot of the cross, family loyalties are realigned based on faith in Jesus. That as you come into this room today, as you come into this room today, you have people who will be your aunt who aren't really your aunt. You have people that might act as your mom who are not actually your mom. And you're like, give me a break, mom, right? Okay. You will have people that are your children, but they're not your children. You will have brothers and sisters that are not your brothers and sisters, but you will indeed call them brother and sister. As a matter of fact, one of the interesting things about the earliest followers of Jesus, there were a lot of things about the earliest followers of Jesus that in a Greco-Roman culture that they got accused of. One of the things that they got accused of was being cannibals. Because if you were walking by a house and there's no windows, there's no double-paned windows, and you hear inside someone saying, take and eat, this is my body, right? Like, you're like, what are they doing in there? Like a bunch of cannibals in there, right? So they, they have that. But one of the things that they get, they actually, one of the charges against them is that these, these relationships, these, these circles of, of worship are incestuous. And one of the reasons for that is that even husbands and wives would refer to each other as brother and sister. It happened so much that they actually gained a reputation for this. It wasn't because they were actually incestuous. It was because they took seriously The idea that as I walk into this room, that I have a loyalty to every person in this room who has faith in Jesus. A loyalty that I would share with my own blood, my own kin. Scholars call it, they call it fictive kinship. And it means that people become your family who actually are not your blood relatives. But true, actually true family. And so you could say, yes, I have a family who I am related to by blood, but I also have a family that would back me in crisis, that would, that would be with me in my darkest moments, that would be closer than a brother in the people of my faith, that I could go across this world and find someone that believes in Jesus, and they would say, hello, brother. They would greet me as a brother in Christ. How many people have experienced that? You've gone across the world and people have greeted you like a brother or a sister. I would imagine if you've ever been on a mission trip or you've ever gone to another country where you've encountered believers that you have been welcomed with hospitality as a brother or a sister. And what we see here is that at the foot of the cross, Jesus says, well, first of all, he's like, hey, Mary, like, if, I, it would have been interesting. What did Jesus actually call Mary? Like, mom or woman or whatever. But he's like, mom, like, I'm not your son. I'm the son of God. And I'm your Lord. But here's the thing. You might, you're not losing a son because you have sons. 
And as much as he needs to care for you, you need to care for him. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. And that as we find, as we come to faith in Jesus, we come into a room like this and we realize there are people who God has called me to to support like family. This is more than just provision for Mary. It models the profound truth that at the cross of Jesus, mothers find new sons. Sons find new mothers. We find new brothers. We find new sisters. And disciples care for each other with the bonds of family. And new family bonds are formed. We also learn that we have to entrust our own kids. I don't know if you guys have come to this point. For me, I, I remember when I, when I came to faith in Jesus and, and then when, we, when I got married and Kelly and I started having kids, I, I remember thinking like, like one day I have, to, I have to tell my kids, look, I have brought you as far as I can take you. I have raised you. I have taught you. I, hopefully I've taught you right and wrong. I probably messed you up in profound ways too, but that's okay. Like what goes right is better than what is more important than what goes wrong. Okay, like we, we can rest on that. But I've got to hand you off to your true father. I got to hand you off. As much as you're my son, you are the son, you are the son of God and the brother of Jesus. That Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. And I've got to hand you off. As much as I might grieve for your suffering, there's no one grieving more for your suffering than your heavenly father. And I have to admit my own finite as a parent, as a father, that Moms, you guys have to admit your finiteness as a mother, and you need to say, as much as the grief of a mother is significant, and the advocacy of a mother is significant, there is no greater advocacy than God the Father for you. 